Coming up on the Van Maren Show, we're going to be talking to conservative intellectual John O'Sullivan about Victor Orban's Hungary, the future of conservatism, and what the great debates of conservatism are in 2020. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Ladies and gentlemen, my special guest today is John O'Sullivan. He has been the editor of the National Review and still works with the National Review Institute. He works with the Danube Institute out of Budapest, Hungary at the moment. He is also the author of a book on Viktor Orban's second term in Hungary. He was a former speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher and stayed close to the Iron Lady until her death. And he is one of the most incisive and interesting commentators explaining the divisions in conservatism and where we go from here for decades now. I was really privileged that he agreed to come on this show and share his insights with us. And so without further introduction, here's my conversation with John. John O'Sullivan. Well, to begin with, your your political career now stretches back decades. What was f- what was it that first got you interested in politics and involved in, in in conservative circles? Well, I was about fourteen years old in 1956, which is when two major world events happened. One was Suez, at which the British and the French intervened in Egypt to try to protect their interests in the Suez Canal, more generally their strategic interests in the Middle East, and the second was the Hungarian uprising, the Hungarian revolution against uh, Moscow-controlled Hungarian communist uh, government. Um, Both of these appealed to me at the very moment when I was becoming aware of politics and interested in it. And uh, they both enthused me. I was very much on the the Anglo-French side in in Suez. In retrospect, uh, I think that it was badly handled. On the other hand, uh, the bill for our defeat comes in annually, uh, to quote um, a distinguished uh, expert in the Middle East. And Hungary, my um, sympathies were, of course, 100%, 1,000% uh, with the Hungarian people, many of them young, just a little bit older than me, who right. rose up to try to get back their country. So these two huge events appeal to me strongly, and they explain virtually the whole of the rest of my life. How did your formal career then begin? Because it, it seems like, from what you've said as well, there's there's a lot of conservative writers who were, were inspired to become conservative by cold, the Cold War and the sort of very, very obvious good and evil uh, battles that were taking place right across Europe and elsewhere. But how did you get formally involved in terms of your career? Uh, well, of course, I was too young to be really involved at first, but I did try. Um, I may be the youngest person in um, history to try, who lied about his age in order to join the young conservatives in England. And in fact, a very fatherly and, and decent old boy who was the paid um, pro- professional agent of the Tory party said to me, um, I, think you're, um, I think you're too young, son. And I replied indignantly, of course I wasn't. He said, well, I think you are anyway. My advice to you is enjoy yourself, play cricket, chase girls, don't get involved in politics. 
And I was very indignant. I said, it's your job to recruit people to the Conservative Party. What on earth do you think you're doing? And he just laughed and said, come back a few in a few years. Well, I got to know that guy very well, actually, and, and liked him very much. He was a kind of old-fashioned conservative, and he didn't think that politics was the most important thing. And, in, you know, looking back many years later, I'm sure he was right. Um, so, first of all, I did try to get involved, and at university I was um, a member of the Conservative Association, very active, took part in debates, and, um, um, and then my first job, uh, because I was more successful as a Conservative than I was as a student. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and so, what I then did was, at the end of it, my first job was that uh, I got a job working for the Tory party, actually, in northwest uh, Yorkshire at a place called Swinton Conservative College, which was that kind of, um, you know, officer training corps for the Tory party. We held courses on everything from the welfare state to the crisis in the Middle East to the future of nuclear weapons. And I did that for four years, and it brought me into contact with virtually all the leading figures in the party while I was there, and indeed with people, with conservatives from all over the country. You know, I've, obviously one changes one mind, one's mind on many things as you go through life, but I've never, ever lost my respect for the decency of the ordinary conservative throughout the country. I think you often, we often get disappointed by our leaders, but the ordinary conservative, I think he's got sound moral instincts and sound instincts for citizenship. So that, that meant that I was embedded, so to speak, on the right for the rest of my life. But I went on to run for parliament, didn't get in, but I could recite to you now how good a result I got in the 70 general election. And then I went um, into journalism and I found my metier, really. Political journalism was more what I was uh, about, more what I wanted, more about the ideas in politics than the organization. Um, and I've remained in it one way or another in a think tank or on a newspaper for the rest of my life. When you say that you met um, all the leading conservative figures in England, but also from around the world, who were, who were some of these figures that really made an impact on you at the time? Um, well, I didn't meet Margaret Thatcher, who did make a huge impact on me, obviously, for, till, for many years later when I was in um, Parliament, when I was the parliamentary sketch writer, Spencer uh, mm. for the Daily Telegraph. Um, and some of the people you meet make an impression on you, which, looking back, you think you, you wonder why. I mean, for example, um, one of Mr. Heath's ministers, uh, Peter Walker, um, I never agreed with Peter on a great deal. He was very much a, a wet uh, Tory, anti-Thatcherite. Mm -hmm. But I liked him enormously, and I found that he was a very honorable and decent person. And there were a lot of people in the Tory party, the kind of... Uh, rising stars uh, who would go to any amount of trouble to help a young person who wanted to get involved, who wanted advice, and, uh, and Peter was like that. Um, right. Oh, I, I, and the people I met, uh, I'm, obviously I, Enoch Powell impressed me as he impressed everybody with an extraordinary mind and, and range of ideas and abilities. But um, I suppose you have to come down to it. You have to say that the person who left the biggest mark was Margaret Thatcher because mm -hmm. she had seen, saw what was wrong with the country and she had the f a, not, not a desire but an absolute determination to try to put it right. And this uh, fervor and bravery and determination was very obvious when you got to know her after a short time. Of course, she was also a very ordinary person in other ways. 
I mean, the best way you can think of Margaret Thatcher when you're looking at her career is to think of her as a blend of a world historical statesman like a Bismarck and an ordinary English housewife, like, um, you know, the, the, like that you see in the situation comedies on British TV. Mm-hmm. Before we get into, into Thatcher, because as somebody who was born while she was prime minister, but too young, too young to, to remember her tenure, I'm, I'm very curious to hear some stories from you. But one of the things I'm always interested in when I'm interviewing people who have been part of the movement for decades longer than I've been alive is the, the, the posthumous reputation of certain people uh, that seems to sometimes not resemble their reputation during life. So just to give you one example, Malcolm Muggeridge now in Anglo-Catholic circles and in conservative circles is considered sort of, um, you know, like the standard for journalism and his, his memoir, Chronicles of Wasted Time, is magnificent. But how were men like him seen back in the day when they were you know, on the BBC writing for different newspapers and things like that? Is there a distinct difference between their reputation at the time and then their reputation later on has changed but they changed because people were paying attention to what they were doing there wasn't a, they, they weren't unmasked at any point i don't think i mean some people are um in the case of muggeridge remember his first um his early life was as a strong supporter and sympathizer with soviet communism and he and his wife um, went to moscow in the late 20s early 30s as correspondents for the Manchester Guardian, as it then was, um, who were, they were believers in the Soviet experiment. And in fact, they came very close to giving up English citizenship and becoming uh, Soviet citizens, which of course would have been a disaster for them had they followed through on that wish. Um, because after they'd been there a short time, um, Margaret, who was no fool, very acute, he realized that this was a monstrous regime. Um, and um, he, he wrote a very fine book, which is very hard to get, but it's worth trying to get, called Winter in Moscow, about his experience and about people like Walter Duranty, uh, the, the monster uh, worked for the New York Times, who, in a sense, lied, not only lied about the famine, the forced famine that Stalin imposed on, the Ukraine, on Ukraine, but also tried to destroy the reputation of the man brave enough to actually tell the truth at great risk to himself, um, Gareth Jones. By the way, there's a very good film called Mr. Jones out just now uh, about, about that episode. Mm. So uh, well, well worth seeing. So Muggeridge saw that. He came back to England. And of course, as so often, he found that although the, the conservative press, then the Morning Post, would publish his articles on what was really happening in the Soviet Union. Uh, all his old friends in journalism thought he'd gone mad and wouldn't have anything to do with him. And then he goes on, and most remarkably, in the Second World War, he becomes a spy. And yeah. apparently quite a ruthless spy uh, operating out of Estoril uh, in, uh, near Lisbon in Portugal. And um, uh, he always... This is very typical of Muggeridge. You get the impression when he's talking about this experience that he was a kind of a Bertie Wooster in a P.G. Mm -hmm. Woodhouse novel. But that wasn't the case. I mean, uh, I think that I don't know that I know enough to say anything very firm about it. But there are suggestions that he was a very ruthless uh, operator, as I'm afraid spies in wartime have to be. And then he came back and he had a period in which he was a kind of an enfant terrible of the... Uh, right and left. I mean, he famously, as the editor of Punch, um, had to resign because he ran an article uh, attacking the Queen, which was felt mm -hmm. to be 
kind of thing you do in 1954. And then his final, uh, well, his final two appearances in history, so to speak, are first of all as a, as a, a Christian, as well, first of all, sorry, as um, a satirist. He returns as a satirist, which is very well suited, uh, a witty, sharp, acerbic writer. And um, he appears on television every week on the, what was a very famous TV show, That Was the Week That Was, in which he would just recite some event or story from the news in a very clever uh, and witty way and draw conclusions. And he was famous on all sides, but particularly the left. And then his final phase is that of Christian convert, um, uh, his reporting about um, Mother Teresa, uh, and um, a long period in which he, I think, effectively um, wrote the, his great memoirs, as you say, telling the truth about his life, which he now in large part regretted, and yet at the same time obviously enjoyed as well. Mm -hmm. Did you ever run into people like him during your career in journalism? Oh, well, yes, because Fleet Street is a very much um, a small, uh, it's a village, just mm -hmm. as they say Westminster is a village, and it's hard not to meet people all the time um, whom you're, whom, you know, five years before you'd admired very much from afar when they were on television. So I did get to know him slightly. I was lucky because I was invited to join a lunch club by uh, my, one of my close colleagues on the Daily Telegraph, uh, Colin Welsh, a great uh, journalist and who powerfully shaped the Telegraph. Uh, as one of the kind of the uh, the evangels of Thatcherism before Thatcher, mm -hmm. and um, he belonged to a, a lunch club called the Bertarelli's Lunch Club, at which I met um, uh, Kingsley Amis, the novelist, uh, uh, Anthony Pohl, another very distinguished novelist, um, uh, Tibor Zamueli, uh, an exiled uh, Hungarian historian, former communist, and now very much anti-communist, and, and Bob Conquest. Um, the Sovietologist, who became a very close friend, uh, remained one until his death, and we're friends. We're all family friends with uh, Liddy, uh, his widow, who who lives actually in Northern California. Now, how did you transition from journalism in, into politics and become a, a close friend of Margaret Thatcher's? Well, um, while I was a sketch writer in the Commons in about '73, I think um, I was invited to the lunch of sketch writers. As a new boy, and um, uh, this was a lunch that took place once a month um, called, I think, the Quill Club, in which the people who wrote these dramatic reviews of what happened yesterday in Parliament, which is what we, we were like theatre critics of Parliament, um, used to gather. And we'd always have a distinguished guest, a parliamentarian, and Mrs. Thatcher was the Minister for Education, and on that day she was our guest. Now, I was very, um, I had no particularly strong feelings actually towards Mrs. T at that point, um, but we disagreed about something. Um, I was the only conservative in the room apart from um, the lady herself. And so um, we disagreed about uh, the voucher program for education. And uh, um, she later on embraced it when she was prime minister and so on. But at that point, she was a minister in Ted Heath's fairly liberal conservative government, so she couldn't really go that far. Anyway, she told me I was talking nonsense, and I responded. And I'd just come back from looking at the voucher scheme, which was being experimented, uh, run as an experiment in uh, uh, Alan Rock. 
And I was, my head was stuffed full of facts, figures, arguments. And so I won the argument. <laughs> I mean, I had this blazing uh, row, so to speak. And then she left. And as she left, she said, I must remember you. Now, in fact, I didn't know it. But Mrs. Thatcher liked people who argued with her. Right. Uh, she liked and uh, it was fun for her. And also she felt that she was getting to know what the person was really like, uh, whether they could stand up to cross-examination, that kind of thing. And um, when she left the room, the rest of the room erupted with laughter because I was the sole Tory there. I was the only one she'd had a row with. But from that point on, she remembered who I was. And, and subsequently, she asked me to join the policy unit um, in Downing Street when she was prime minister. It was about 13 years later. And, um, and then also to help to write the Tory party manifesto for the 87 election. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently, she left office. Because I used to, in addition to my regular job uh, in Downing Street, which was that of um, a policy advisor on a range of policies, um, there was a voluntary job you could undertake if you wished, and I did wish, um, and that was that of speechwriter. It wasn't right. paid, it was voluntary, and you were working not for the government but for the party machine and for her personally. And, uh, but it did mean that um, for her, because for her speechwriting, was the way in which she refreshed her mind in politically speaking. And when you're a prime minister, you're dealing with a whole range of administrative uh, foreign questions and everything else. So huge uh, conveyor belt of problems brought to you every day. Um, and you don't always have the opportunity to sit back and reflect and work out what you think about everything that's come up. Um, speech writing was the occasion which forced you to do that and it forced her to think politically as opposed to thinking administratively and uh, she relished that so um, you were in a very if you were working with her on this as we were and she would by the way um, cook <laughs> cook the dinner sometimes because uh, since it was a party and not a government speech she couldn't have the Downing Street servants providing us with food so right. she could do it so you saw her in a different light and you became much more of a friend and, um, and you became uh, to understand her mind and set of ideas so that working with her became easier. Some things you never pursued, some ideas you never pursued, you knew that she would never buy them. Other ideas you thought, well, she really wants to do this. Let's try to see if it's really possible. What are some of the stories uh, from your years of having a personal relationship with her that kind of stand out to you as, as sort of capturing the essence of who she was in the private sphere? Um, well, <laughs> it's very always, to, it's hard always when you're asked that kind of a question to remember <laughs> particular. Um, I do remember, as I say, things like being asked to, uh, uh, being um, uh, asked to sort of help with her cooking something while we were all writing speeches and that kind of thing. But no, I think that um, um, I remember, I realized after a short time um, that she was somebody who, when you, when she trusted someone, she was very candid with them. And for example, um, if you were working with her on some subject at 5.30, say, which was in a sense, generally speaking, the end of a certain kind of working day and, in Downing Street, and she would have lots of other things to do, but, but she would then say, well, let's have a drink. And, you know, and she would say, and, and, either to me or to Charles or someone, uh, give me a small, uh, she used to drink a, a small glass of uh, uh, fa the famous grouse whiskey. 
And um, so we would all get ourselves some kind of a drink and she would just blow off steam and it could be very entertaining and uh, you'd get uh, candid views of the foreign leaders and the rest of it. Um, I suppose the most important thing about her as someone you worked with and for is that she, she kicked up and she kissed down. She mm. was very tough. She was very tough in dealing with cabinet ministers, very senior civil servants, and so on. And uh, if she expected them, uh, they were highly paid, they had a lot of responsibility, a lot of power. She expected them to be doing their best for the British taxpayer. And she would really cross question them very severely. Secondly, if you were working in, like, if you were bringing in the tea, or doing any of the manual job, or if you were one of her detectives, uh, whom she particularly uh, admired and liked, um, you could do no wrong. Uh, she was uh, tremendously kind. Um, on one occasion, for example, at Checkers, at a lunch at Checkers, um, the, uh, one of the Wrens, you know, the, the Wrens are um, naval service women, and um, the, the checkers was, for some reason, a naval post. So the wrens were doing the serving of, of meals. Um, this uh, young woman accidentally tripped and she poured soup into the lap of the foreign secretary. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Thatcher jumped up and said, oh, that's, I'm so sorry. And she immediately rushed over and comforted the girl who poured <laughs> the soup. Only. Rather than the foreign secretary, who had a reasonable to feel he was being overlooked on this occasion. But <laughs> that was pretty much what she was like. She wanted to make sure that the girl realized that anybody can make a mistake and so on and so forth. And Jeffrey Howe's a nice man, too. He, he, wouldn't have, he was a nice man. He wouldn't have minded. But that's the kind of person she was. And people always felt very happy to work with her. Privileged, of course. But also, um, her own staff um, were very, very fond of her and, and found she was an excellent boss and, and a slightly maternal one because she would sort of tell you, oh, no, you, you, uh, give him more potatoes. They're very good for you, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of fun to work with. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, is, is if you look at the, the 1980s, a sort of era of unprecedented leadership, um, especially in conservative circles. And it must have been a heady time for a young conservative to be working in conservative politics, because if you look at at, at the projects that were being uh, under undertaken by Thatcher, by Reagan, the, the pushback in the Cold War, it must have it must have been this sort of conscious awareness that you were in a historical moment and you didn't know exactly where it was leading. But 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 it, did it feel as if it was historic while it was happening, or did that realization come later? I think it gradually came as you were as we were working together. Um, I, and it certainly was there very much by the end of the period. I remember I was then editing National Review and Mrs. Thatcher, still in office, arrived um, in the last few days, last few, uh, uh, last month actually of Reagan's presidency. And um, there's a picture of them quite well known. And it shows the helicopter that's brought her to Camp David in the background. She's wearing a camel coat. He's wearing a bomber jacket. He's escorting her away from the air court, uh, 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 sorry, the helicopter. And we put it on the cover of National Review, and under it we wrote, the heroic area, the heroic era of, conservative, of, of conservatism, the heroic era of conservatism. Mm -hmm. Is it over? Now, 
of course, it, it sort of was over, not because of anything that went wrong afterwards. Um, in fact, the next year was 1989, and that was when the, the Soviet Union basically um, gave up the ghost in, in Eastern Europe, and a year later gave up the ghost entirely. Um, so there were things to come. But in a sense, there was a feeling that all those things were going to come, that there'd been a change, that Gorbachev had signaled um, at Reykjavik and carried it through um, the next year in, um, in um, uh, Washington and New York. The Soviet Union was no longer going to be a strategic enemy, not even perhaps a competitor, and uh, he was getting out of the, the nuclear war game. And, um, and that meant everything was going to be different. And then you have, I think, 20, certainly 15 amazing years in which things go mostly in the right direction because of what's happened between 1979, when she in and 81, when he does, and, and their departure. Those, those years, and in my, my view also, as you may know, I wrote a book about the two of them and the Pope. And... If you think about it this way, the Pope is elected, John Paul II, is elected Pope in, um, I think it's September uh, 1978. Um, uh, no, it's earlier. I think, yes. Well, yes, September 78, I think. And then um, uh, the following year, uh, the, uh, you, you get Mrs. Thatcher, and then two years later, Reagan. But what you get from the beginning with uh, the with the Soviets realizing in the Pope, they have an enemy um, who will be for them extraordinarily hard to deal with because mm -hmm. um, he was a Polish Pope. And that's meant that the whole of Eastern and Central Europe was suddenly felt that they had a true and lasting friend in world politics outside their region. And uh, he himself said, about the church in Eastern Europe. He said, the church in Eastern Europe is no longer the, the church of silence because it speaks with my voice. And I think that was a powerful moment. So uh, these three people in different ways, they come in and each of them contributes enormously, I think, to the end of the peaceful end of communism. I think Mrs. Hatcher contributed to it um, economically. In a way, she took hold of the British economy, she shook its shoulders, she transformed it, and, and a year after, ten years later, the British economy is the fourth largest economy in the world and the subject of a lot of admiration. Whereas the Soviet economy had been under the untrammeled control of communism for 70 years, and it still exported less to the world than Singapore. So there was a sense that that was a kind of object lesson the Soviets could not ignore. Either they reformed or they would be gradually, they would gradually watch the, the West not only pass them in the fast lane, but go, they wouldn't be able to see its tail light in a very short time. Uh, Reagan, of course, with his military buildup, um, also, and, and his, many of his important peaceful overtures, he too changed things psychologically. Um, and, and, and the Pope did so spiritually. So you have these enormous, three enormous figures having this um, impact on the Soviet Union and on the Soviet satellites. And in a way, those three people are far more the representative of what the people in, peoples in those countries want. 
than what than their governments are. So I've that was the that was the real thing. And after that, we were living in a different world. Once the realization percolated that communism was, in a sense, coming to an end, even. It took about 10 years after Reagan in, in that Westminster speech said it was destined for the ash heap of a history. Well, it actually took less than 10 years before his words came true. One of the, the things that I always find interesting is you have, uh, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the wall comes down. And it, it's very strange because for decades, the West had sort of defined itself against communism, right? It was the inherently virtuous America over against the evil empire. And then when the wall came down, in the meantime, of course, America had experienced sort of this... Uh, in total sexual revolution from the 60s, 70s, all the way into the 80s, then unprecedented materialism, essentially everything predicted by uh, Solzhenitsyn in his 1978 Harvard address about sort of the spiritual ravages that were afflicting the West that they hadn't noticed because they were too busy standing off against a very obvious totalitarian enemy came to be true. And then you had this, this, this sort of the 90s. And then I remember uh, 2001, it was so interesting when 9-11 happened because there was this this very strange alliance in the United States between old cold warriors like Christopher Hitchens, between neoconservatives, but then also uh, by conservative Christians who had watched the collapse of the moral majority and were starting to suspect that perhaps America wasn't as good as they thought she was in the way that they would define good. And so everybody needed this new enemy for a different reason. And they all kind of clumped together around this idea of Islamofascism, as I believe it was Christopher Hitchens coined it. Of course, that led... Uh, the unity didn't last as long as the wars did, and that fell apart. And now uh, there's a very real sense on both sides that the enemy is within. Uh, how do you see the, the sort of identity of the West having been wrapped up in communism and how it progressed from there? Well, I don't think that communism was quite as big... Um, quite as important for our view of ourselves as perhaps you, you've just been suggesting, though it was very important. I mean, in the sense it was a challenge. Um, it meant that we had to be on our toes and the apps all the time, we, we couldn't take for granted our liberties because we knew that there was going to be, there'd just been a Berlin crisis and there might be then a Cuba crisis some years later. Um, you weren't able to relax. Uh, the end of the Cold War meant, I think, and this was the, what you're talking about, that all of a sudden we could relax. Now, I think that's a mistake, of course, because um, you're always going to be facing some kind of challenge. And uh, the, only, the difference is that some challenges you can see and you're frightened by and they move you, and others you can't see, and they are insidious and they get under your guard. And I think that, in a way, is what's happened. And, of course, that those challenges also exist to our own nature. And I do think that um, we have been through a period in which um, attacks upon our own ourselves, upon our virtue, um, internally have made tremendous headway because we've really ignored them. And what we're witnessing now, for example, in the, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter agitation and the Antifa attacks on people and the widespread rioting, lawlessness and disorder, uh, what you're witnessing there is a country which has ignored the criticisms um, made of it by radical groups. Some criticisms might have been true and we could have possibly um, done something about reforming ourselves. 
But other criticisms, which in my view are not true, and they're the ones which say that we have no, we've never had concern for people at the lower end of society. We were unaware of the, um, uh, of the racial oppression and we did nothing about it. I don't think that's true. I mean, obviously, um, everybody knows about slavery. We know that produced a civil war in which large numbers of Americans died to end slavery. There's then a period in which we try to conciliate the South, not in itself an ignoble aim, but leading to a period of Jim Crow, which again is unjust to well, about 10, 11, 12% of our citizens. And this kind of thing carries on, but there's throughout American history, what you, and throughout British history in a different context, which I'll come to in a second, throughout American history, you have a strong impulse which comes from, um, from the whole society um, uh, to improve life for people at the uh, low end of the scale. It's not always done well and it's forgotten at times, but you do see it. And you see it, for example, in the Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement. In Britain, it seems to be slightly clearer even because um, with all the criticisms you can make about the British Empire, the fact is, that slavery was ended throughout the world um, by, the, uh, by the British um, uh, nation and by the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Whatever, yeah, the, whatever the flag was raised uh, in uh, the empire, slavery came to an end. And I mean, that was, that was the result of agitation in England, something called the London Anti-Slavery Society, uh, a relatively small group of Methodists at first, and, um, and uh, evangelical Christians who, who mounted the first major campaign to arouse the conscience of the world about the mistreatment of their fellow man, their fellow man from completely different um, society and civilization, but nonetheless their fellow man. And, and I don't think you can ignore the importance of that, and you can't ignore the importance in our societies described describing what we are of, for example, the, 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 the Royal Navy's West African parole, uh, patrol, which brought about, uh, which pursued slaver, slavers, which stopped the slave trade, any more than you can ignore the losses of the Union Army in the um, War of Independence. So, uh, you, you, obviously, no nation is entirely pure, no nation is entirely vicious, but on the scales of virtue to vice, I think we would have to say the English-speaking powers, by and large, um, have done better than most. And you can arouse their you can arouse their conscience in a way that I'm sure it happens elsewhere too. But in a way, it's somehow easier to arouse the conscience of our two societies uh, than it is uh, more generally. Well, it. it- it's very interesting because like Douglas Murray commented on this saying that it's there's nothing wrong with understanding that our civilizations, that our countries have done things that are wrong. Where the problem lies is when we cannot conceive of our societies ever having done anything good and has no capability of doing anything good. And that brings me to, to something else I really wanted to discuss with you. Uh, you might recall there was a monk debate between... Um, I believe it was uh, uh, Nigel, Fer- uh, not Nigel Farage, sorry, Neil Ferguson uh, and Freed Zachariah a couple of years back on whether or not the international, the liberal international order was over. And this is obviously a very sort of hot topic of debate. And I wanted to understand um, um, your take on it, because to some degree, 
uh, the way the liberal international order is being defined by its defenders, so out here David Frum has defended it, I think uh, quite eloquently, seem to have this idea that everything is fine and those who make the objections that they make are not understanding how good they have it, essentially. So I read the the recent book by Anne Applebaum a couple of weeks ago, Twilight of Democracy, and most of her critique boiled down to uh, those who were sort of conned into voting for Brexit, conned into voting for Trump, conned into all these different things, don't understand how good they have it, and the reason they don't understand that is because they've been lied to by these, you know, various shady characters, etc., etc. So... How do you see the rise of, of populism, which is, is kind of a, it's kind of a nonsensical word to use because it's very imprecise, but how do you see the sort of backlash that has taken place over the last several years to the liberal international order or just to the status quo, to the way things have been done for the last several decades, especially as somebody who was involved in sort of the Cold War aspect of it prior to the 90s? Well, first of all, let's see, we must establish that there are in fact two versions of a liberal international order. Um, that one is, in my view, better, uh, more solidly rooted in democracy than the other. And there's every reason in, to protect that democratic uh, order as opposed to an, an oligopolistic one. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, the, the international order we had until the Second World War um, and, well, probably till, say, about 1960, arguably till 1989, was an order of cooperation between nation states. That, that is to say, there were some international organizations, but they were mainly, um, the ones that were useful and so on, uh, the technical ones, they had no power, really. They, if you were the International Post and Telegraph Convention, you, you made sure that there were rules for running the International Post Telegraph. Um, you, you didn't actually dictate to nations uh, what they should do. Um, and the, the second kind of international order is not of a cooperation between nation states in which international bodies are the agents of the uh, nation states. It's one in which the important players are, in, are global bodies, like the UN, uh, and its various uh, agencies, uh, or the EU, which presents itself as a new and different kind of state, which is neither a nation on the one hand, nor an empire on the other, nor an international agency, but some odd blend of both. But, they, but a blend which certainly makes demands, not requests, makes demands upon nation states and says that they are the people who will decide very important questions like level of taxation, level of trade, and so on. Now, I think that the, the first of those, the, interna the, the um, international order based on nation states, is a better system because it's based upon states which have got some standing to say, well, this is what our people want. Um, they, they are rooted in democracy. They take their instructions from the voters, so to speak, and they transmit them up there to um, the international agency. They don't just... Um, in a sense, respond to instructions from the international agency. And I think that's the, that's the major uh, point of principle that we have to defend. And I think um, that the uh, Trump administration is quite right to say that when it goes, uh, when it is dealing with um, uh, um, other nations, that it does so, so to speak. They're all equals uh, at a, in a formal sense. Uh, but it knows that it can actually, in, um, it can deal with, uh, let's say, Poland uh, or, or with uh, France 
um, in a way that both sides know um, that the other side has, a, uh, has the right to make the decisions that they just agreed on. So, so that's, the, that's the first point, and that's not, almost never discussed, but it, 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 that is in fact the, the basis for, for thinking that um, the liberal international order is not exactly also what, what say, David and, and Anne maybe have been presenting it as. That would be my argument anyway. Um, what, are we, what are we losing? Uh, well, I have to say in Anne's case, I think, she is... Um, she does not take into account in her discussion of Brexit the fact that when she presents this from a very London-centric standpoint, she worked on The Spectator. Um, she's, while she's working there, she's going to dinner parties, she's meeting officials, she's having diplomatic lunches and so on. She never meets, she says, anybody who thought it was a practical proposition that Britain should leave the European Union. I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that all the time she was meeting people, even Brexiteers, did not talk about this as a practical proposition because it didn't seem to be, the, all of the institutions of British society. Now, um, in fact, if you look at opinion polls from 1977 right up to and beyond the 2016 um, referendum, you will see that there is at all points a very substantial percentage of the British voters who actually want to leave. Now, it sometimes goes above 50% and below it. Most of the time, it's probably around 35, 40. In the last 10 years before the referendum, it gradually rises again and again. And then when you have the referendum, and you have, under the rules of the referendum, you have to have impartial treatment of the both sides. Under those rules, Britain discovers it has a majority for leave. That astonished people because Leave had never had any purchase on television and radio. It had one or two papers, which Anne thinks were crucial. She doesn't think the BBC, which is the main, um, uh, um, the main provider of news to the British people, she doesn't seem to take into account that the BBC was solidly pro-Remain and, and hardly indeed treated Leavers as people who had a right to speak. I mean, that's, that's the truth of the matter. They, they treated them as an eccentric fringe. And now it's clear that all that time there was, if not a majority, um, always a substantial body of, uh, of opinion that wanted to be, have a free society. And why? We wanted to leave because we wanted to be what we had been until 1975, mm -hmm. a, a governing democratic state. I, she, again, dismisses that. She thinks that there's no, we, we were not getting more democracy or losing or when we're not, uh, we were losing and not gaining democracy when we left the EU. The fact is, the EU is, has many good aspects, but it is not a very democratic organization. Um, as, you, as you see, whenever there's a big meeting, the decisions are made which do not seem to represent what the majority of people in the EU want, and, and, and a lot of the time, not even a majority of governments. And, and if there are uh, one or two countries using their rights to object, they're very often simply ignored. People just go, the, the, the organization goes around them. If they vote against something in a referendum, they're asked to vote again until they get it right. So I think that you can understand Brexit very simply. It was the rediscovery of the importance of sovereignty and particular democratic sovereignty. And one of the, and this will be my last point on this, if you want justification for it, have a look 
at how the Greeks, how Greece has been treated in the last five years. It has not, it has totally lost control of its economic and financial situation. It has been turned into a country that's inside a debtor's prison. Looks to me as though it will never get out. And, and um, if you say, what use is sovereignty? Well, the use of sovereignty is that you're not in a debtor's prison and you can make your own decisions on crucial matters of economic and financial policy. Have you, uh, have you read Anne Applebaum's book, Law of Democracy? <laughs> I'm, I'm reviewing it at the moment. I haven't yet finished the review. Okay, I, I I finished it. I finished it recently. I was I was quite disappointed simply because I'm a huge admirer of her book uh, Red Famine, uh, as well as her book The Gulag. She's a, a phenomenal historian, and I, one of the things that I found in the book that I found a little bit frustrating because it felt to me like uh, uh, right around page seventy, uh, the old sort of meme from 2017 cropped up of this is why you got Trump, like the inability to understand the opponent. And and one point I wanted to, to ask you about specifically in regard to that book is the fact that one of the reasons she seems to condemn those who, who disagree with her, uh, I believe she blitzes through a, like a whole list of reasons people might have voted the way they voted in less than a paragraph and then moves right on to explaining why they were wrong again, is she never actually talks about the excesses of the left. She never, uh, she never explains why people might be behaving the way that they are. And on one page, and I only counted three instances in the book where she actually explicitly talks about the excesses of the left. She talks about, yes, you know, on the left, we have this uh, authoritarian instinct as well here and there with cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera, and then sort of says, but, and moves on. And the, the unfinished part of that sentence that comes after the but is, but I at least agree with their goals. Um, and, and this, there's a lot of this going on right now where, where, where these folks are saying, yes, I disagree with, you know, what Antifa's doing. I disagree with what Black Lives Matter is doing. I disagree with those who are trying to cancel JK Rowling and trying to cancel this person or that person. But uh, at least I believe the people that are doing the canceling have the right motives, the right intentions. And at the end of the day, I do agree with the destination they're headed towards. I just wish they wouldn't be such jackasses about it. Um, and so my my primary difficult what the book was just that I didn't feel like any she, she talked a lot for example about uh, the Vichy regime that was her, her her article in the Atlantic describing her thesis right that that those of us who are fascinated for for example by Yoram Hazoni's idea of national conservatism I went to the conference in DC are very interested in this idea of of, of sovereignty uh, that we're cutting a deal with the devil um, however she never talks about the fact that the left is cutting its own deal at the moment and that the left with all of its cultural power is going to have far more opportunity to utilize it should somebody for example like 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 joe biden get elected and the final thing i, I want to mention just because i want to hear your thoughts on it is the one consistent theme throughout her book and several like it it's the same thing with david Frum's uh, most recent book is they keep on talking about the attack on norms and one of the things that I find fascinating is that they never notice what norms have been shifting. So right now we have people getting fired from their jobs uh, because they refuse to uh, endorse phrases like her penis 
Uh, there was a, a university professor who got fired for saying men can't get pregnant. There was another university professor who rejected the, se- uh, the sentiment, his breasts. And so despite the fact that tr- Trump is a very abnormal person, et cetera, et cetera, they don't seem to grasp the fact that maybe people are voting for them because they're actually protecting norms that the folks backed by, by, by folks like, like, like from an apple bomb are attacking. The, the idea of her penis is an extraordinary radical thing. Uh, that just because the, the, that frog has been boiled slowly enough, it doesn't mean most of us, uh, you know, sort totally understand this rejection of reality. So, with that sort of rambling review of her book, what is what is your take on all that? Well, I uh, there's one point I disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I do not see how uh, Anne can would argue, could argue, or would argue actually that her um, uh, viewpoint, uh, the direction in which she wants to go is, so to speak, a more moderate, reasonable, slower, and perhaps more gentle um, a verdict of what um, Black Lives Matters wants, what Antifa wants. For this very simple reason, um, you can more or less say that the 1619 Project in the New York Times is what the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, organization wants. I mean, they want right. more than that. But and, and, and the wider population that may know nothing about Black Lives Matter's technical arguments and so on. Um, nonetheless, there's a wider sympathy in American society for a radical change uh, of, uh, in our institutional arrangements. They do, I mean, there is, this is a movement to reject the Constitution of the United States and replace it with a different kind of constitution. I, I think that if you have a free society, uh, you have to have debates if people, if enough people want to, want to do that. But at the same time, I don't think it's what most Americans want. And I think that there's a certain shiftiness among some people. And first of all, saying what they want is the maximalist demands, 1619 project argument. And other times they just want a more compassionate society. Um, uh, my wife, when she hears that phrase, she's well, yes, but we don't want uh, clueless compassion. We don't want compassion that is uh, harming people. And, and I think that's true. But, but, but Anne, as far as I can see, particularly in the chapter in which she's discussing America in her new book, she is very clear um, that she, uh, she and Ronald Reagan and Abraham Lincoln and the founders and uh, um, uh, Bill Crystal and I think... Uh, who is the other, uh, who is the final, uh, oh yes, Mitt Romney. They are the palette, they're the, um, uh, the supporters and advocates of the US Constitution. That's what they believe in. They believe in America as an idea, um, except American exceptionalism, America as um, a city, shining city on a hill, yet also a, a missionary, a democratic missionary um, throughout the world. They believe those things. That is not what the, um, uh, the, the advocates of massive social change, uh, uh, who are now sort of tearing down statues um, and, and behaving in a kind of violent and aggressive way to those with whom they disagree and, and firing people for expressions of perfectly respectable opinion and sometimes of irreproachable scientific opinion. So I don't think she could argue, or would, or would argue, as I say, that she's in a sense on their side. Right. I think she... Her problem would be the, the opposite, really. Her problem is that they are not on her side. They regard her support 
for the American idea um, and for democratic capitalism and so on, as the kind of America they want to destroy and replace with something, um, I'd say more collectivist and so on and so forth. Now, so she can't do that. And in fact, if you look at this, her situation at the end of that paragraph, it seemed to me when I've read that, that as these battles are going on in America, uh, as the violence gets worse in Chicago yesterday and um, in Seattle and Portland and, and various spots around the country, she has got to face the danger that when it comes down, she has much more in common with Pat Buchanan um, who, when all is said and done, Pat doesn't want to tear down American institutions. His criticisms of America, which she quotes, um, are criticisms of a man who's sorry to see his loved one fallen into such a state. Mm -hmm. He's not... He's not happy that America is suffering, the, that there's class and race uh, and other forms of division getting worse and worse. He's not happy uh, with the fact that America is, as he sees it, blundered into difficult situations abroad and doesn't know quite how to handle them. For him, the, these are tragedies. And I don't think that, I don't actually see Anne and Pat linking arms uh, on a march, but I can see that she'll find him more sympathetic than she will find the people who perhaps think she's on their side when I don't think she is. Well, that, that's sort of the interesting thing, because when it comes to sort of purging the fringe, I would absolutely agree that the conservative wing of things has a fringe, and that fringe would be the alt-right. I've written about a dozen columns on the alt-right since uh, uh, early 2016 already, saying, look, whoa, look, one drop of anti-Semitic poison poisons the whole barrel. Uh, we should do these people the favor of, of taking their, their pronouncements seriously. I was one of the reasons I, I, was, I had such a great impression of Yoram Hazoni's National Conservatism project from the beginning is he purged V-Dare. He, like, he purged all of the folks that wanted to show up at the party and sort of make it their own racial identitarian sort of thing. So I think that the conservative wing has a responsibility to ensure our ranks are not poisoned by people of those sorts of identities. But what is the responsibility then of, of, of an Apple bombs, the, the liberals, to do the same sort of purge on their left flank? Or is there none? It seems like, as Douglas Murray said, you go from uh, a smaller government to Hitler almost immediately, but there's no such thing as too far left. Yeah, I tend to be much more liberal than they are, and I think than you are, as a matter of fact, than the Yoram is. I, I, as long as people, I mean, uh, people want to turn up at, at a party I'm giving and pay money at the door and listen to the lecture, I'll let them. Um, now, um, I don't, so I'm essentially as pretty well um, uh, a free speech absolutist um, and and I, 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 there are of course limits. There always are. But I, I'm but I'm pretty well an absolutist when it comes to political opinion. Uh, and you know I, I wouldn't let some political opinion dominate something I was controlling. But I would make sure that there was a response to it. But nonetheless, uh, I think it, the best way is to let people who are peaceful and uh, willing to argue, I'd let them do it. Now, but you don't agree with that, that's fine. You know, um, where we can have, we can have, uh, we can have uh, different halls. I'll have a larger hall expecting a larger audience. I may be disappointed. Um, now, so having said that, um, of course, we ourselves have to police 
ourselves. We have to police our own opinions. We have to say what we think, uh, honestly, at the same time. On the other hand, we have to, um, um, we, we don't want to give unreasonable offense, um, but we don't, we cannot yield to people who are taking unreasonable offense. Uh, and we have to, uh, we have to let, uh, for example, um, stu students, students are there at a college in order to broaden their horizons, not to narrow them. They're there in order to be able to learn how to cope with fallacies and mistakes and errors and illogicalities, not to, in a sense, be fed a, a diet of pap. And I think, um, you know, for most of my life, I've been able to live in a society, first England and America, uh, and now I say Hungary, in which people are able to stand up and express opinions uh, and people will reply to them. And the likelihood of a fight breaking out is so remote that, uh, you know, the, most of the time you don't even have security guards for a meeting. Um, right. and, and, yeah. So I, I want to get back to that. And I think in order to get back to that, we have to change our education significantly. I was following Jonathan Haidt uh, recently in some of his lectures, and I think he has got essentially mm -hmm. the right idea. The um, coddling of the American mind lectures. That's right. And I, uh, yeah, we, I don't think we, and, and it's not good, as he said in one of his lectures, um, um, if you actually do uh, protect everyone with cotton wool, there is only one group who doesn't, he said, white males. And that greatly benefits them because when they finish four years of university of being, so to speak, argued with, debated, crushed, and so on, they emerge into the rest of the world as people able to cope with difficulties, right. uh, not as people never encountered an obstacle uh, of any serious kind in the previous four years. So the f final subject I wanted to, to discuss with you is is Viktor Orban, the sort of the Eastern European rising right, which is one of the most interesting topics uh, that we see going on now. Now, I am instinctively, uh, as anybody who's read my columns knows, I'm very instinctively uh, supportive of Orban just because I find what he's doing with his family policy to be fascinating. I'm also a very pro-life person, so the extent to which he has managed to reduce the abortion rate um, using, using non-coercive government programs. I think is a, is a model that should be followed by, by by other countries. It's phenomenal what he's managed to do. Um, I recognize that on one hand there are valid critiques to be made of Orban and his government, while on the other side that those making those critiques are also willing to be sort of duplicitous and dishonest in the way that they critique him. So I thought Michael Doherty's uh, uh, column. Uh, an 80, the 82-day dictatorship, uh, which pointing out that all of these, uh, Damon Linker and Applebaum, a half a dozen other commentators had said, look, Orban is using you know, the COVID-19 pandemic to lock down, to start a dictatorship, even though his lockdown was less onerous than, than what we had in Canada for a while uh, and lasted shorter than, than almost all of them in, in, in Western Europe. So what is the reasonable, what are, what are the best things to be said about Orban? And then what are the worst things to be said about Orban? I I know you wrote a, a balanced analysis of his second term. So what would your take on the man and his leadership be? Well, I think he's, a, first of all, an extremely talented politician. And mm -hmm. um, I, um, I think that's the most important. That's the first point. The second point is, yes, he's made mistakes and he does things that you or I wouldn't agree with. I would say, for example, um, one example of that would be, I think that in prior to the election campaign, he spent public money 
on what was in effect a party campaign on immigration. Mm. Um, that's, that is certainly uh, n not something that those of us who think that we shouldn't be taxed to support opinions we don't have, <laughs> we don't hold, uh, will object to. And um, and and I know I was critical of that and so on. Um, but frankly, and this is where Anne and I have had this dispute, practically anything you can say, uh, critical of Orban, um, that has been done by some democratic or socialist or whatever government elsewhere. And um, the, and, and, and when you when you point this out to Anne, she says, "Oh well, that's what about her?" Well, um, it is what about her if I'm making the argument in order to, in a sense, legitimise my own bad behaviour. But actually, if that's not my motive, what's more important here is that I'm exposing her inconsistencies, which she doesn't want exposed. Now, um, the press in Hungary. Um, the, the, there are opposition newspapers. Um, there are, I think the government's probably got more um, social, media, social media opponents than it has social media supporters. Um, there is no uh, formal censorship. People have compared, uh, people on the left have compared Orban to uh, Putin and to uh, Erdogan. Is it, has a single journalist been arrested? Has anybody been killed? No. Um, in the in the press, are there opposition newspapers? Yes. Do they criticise the government very sharply? Um, if, is it possible to have public expressions of this in a general in a public square? Well, on, in the last uh, in the two years before the election, if you were arriving in Budapest and you were driving from the airport to the city or going the other way, you would see would have seen these posters, which showed Orban and some local Fidesz um, bigwig talking together, and the poster read, um, um, the, uh, you work, they steal. And these posters all over the country, you know, Fidesz had posters in reply um, showing the, um, um, George Soros manipulate, being a puppet master of one party and another, um, and, and an oligarch being a, 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 a the public most of another uh, of another party. There was very vigorous debate indeed. And, you know, when we were talking before about people being fired and for expressing opinions, uh, and, and indeed people just at universities being generally afraid to express their opinions, um, even when they were obviously simply parroting scientific fact. Um, in Hungary, um, there is no, um, that people have a sense that they're, in terms of, kind of public pressure on them, they can, they're much more free to speak. I'll tell you one interesting story at the election. Um, I was talking to a friend who is very much an opponent of the government, and he's teachers at the university, one of the largest in the city and an important university. And he said to me, you know, all my students, um, they think the elections were stolen. Uh, and I said, oh, why, why do you think that? He said, well, John, they've never met anybody at the university who's going to vote for Fidesz. They've never met anybody. Now, that's exactly the same situation as you get, of course, in American and British universities. And it does lead to this odd feeling that, you know, they're, they're living in a different kind of a world and they're amazed when the elections are held and it turns out a lot of people are voting for people they consider monsters. And uh, now, uh, my, my colleague on this occasion was somebody, as I say, who was a critic of the government, but he was perfectly well aware of the facts of life. And the facts of life were that Orban was going to win a huge victory. Uh, why? 
for, he was governing the country effectively and well in an old-fashioned way. In other words, people felt secure. Uh, there were no uh, riots. Everything seemed to work reasonably well. Secondly, because the economy had done very well in the previous four years. Um, the economist told me it was the go these were golden years for Hungary. Um, thirdly, the, uh, uh, the other parties, um, the opposition parties, were split um, and fighting with each other. The result was, because he had more or less monopolized the centre-right, he got a vote of about 50%. And the, the other vote was split among, well, there was a, a neo-fascist party on the right that actually did well, um, and because it got a lot of left-wing votes. And, um, and then there, was, um, uh, there were four parties uh, splitting the, the left-wing vote there. So you're getting parties to get 11%. And 9% uh, that kind of result. Now, he couldn't lose that election, really. He could have done if they'd been all well organized, um, but they weren't. And when they get well organized, they'll mount a challenge. I don't believe Viktor Orban is undefeatable. I don't believe it. I don't believe any politician ever is, actually. But, uh, but well, because I think people get bored with people after they've been in office for a long time things inevitably sometimes go wrong. Um, you, um, uh, th those kind of things effectively mean that after three terms, uh, you know, a governing party is playing on a tilted, a field tilted against itself. And it, it in a sense, it, it quote, should lose the election. It won't necessarily do so uh, because it might be, first of all, governing well, and secondly, um, behaving sensibly and being cautious. I think there are, there are always risks for, for governments. And I think we, I think the left, which is saying that, uh, that I don't believe the left itself really believes it can't possibly win, it, uh, and but it wants to spread the idea outside Hungary um, that this is not um, uh, this is not a, a, dem a democracy. It's plainly a democracy. It does have some features which I wish were more liberal. Um, I'd like there to be um, a better balance of press opinion in in Hungary but compare it to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and when I said this, you know, uh, that how many newspapers are on the side of Donald Trump? How many television stations? I mean, there's a something like 90-10 um, imbalance in uh, newspapers in the United States in favor of the Democrats. And there's very, sem and in, in, uh, in universities, it's something like, uh, I think, three to one in favor of the Democrats, and in certain subjects like political, like um, international politics, um, grievance studies, um, uh, poll sci, the, the imbalance of lecturers is something like uh, at nine to one or uh, 95 to five. I mean, th this is, these imbalances are far worse in the United States and in Britain and in other countries, Australia and so on, uh, than they are than they are in, in Hungary. So, I mean, what you have to do is to, in a sense, be realistic. Um, the Hungarian government is basically doing a good job. It's making some mistakes. It should spend more on health, should spend more on education. It should spend less on building football stadiums and sports stadiums in general, which it had good reasons for starting, but they've gone too far. And um, so I'm, um, uh, so I, I, my own view is that politics is like here, is like politics elsewhere. Uh, and we'll, you should, you know, people who follow politics should be looking for the signs that the opposition is beginning to get its act together, not many of those, mm -hmm. and secondly, 
judgment is making some mistakes, some of those, and then begin to judge it on that basis. Um, now, um, I personally think that the uh, that if you were to apply these tests around the world, the British would come out very well. Hmm. I think they they've got a very good balance. Um, do you really think, though, that um, uh, throughout Western Europe, that the uh, that there is um, um, well, sorry, the rest of the world has mixed has mixed um, performances in all these things, and uh, we should be honest enough to say so, and honest enough um, to be prepared to argue the case. So why would you say then that that somebody like Applebaum and and quite a few others like they mention they actually mention um, Orban in the same sentence as Putin, uh, like he's, he's he's talked about as addict. So they won't quite compare him to Putin, but he's 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 put in the same list. I noticed this happened three or four separate times where Orban was slipped into the same sentence as Vladimir Putin, a man whose opponents have a bad habit of being careless on balconies. Uh, and, and, and it's quite obviously had people assassinated specifically for the point of intimidation. So what is, I have never quite understood the hysteria surrounding, surrounding Orban specifically, like with the law and justice party, I at least understand that, that, that especially LGBT activists and progressive activists, um, are alarmed because they disagree and they dislike what the law and justice party is doing and how they're sort of stoking traditionalist Catholic sentiment. I've never understood the panic around Orban. How would you explain it? When he was prime minister, um, which was from, uh, uh, 1998 to 2002, um, he was a new model liberal conservative that that a lot of people like Ammon and others wanted, and um, and he governed well, but he lost. Now, not only did he lose, but he lost for a number of reasons. One of which was he wasn't really given the support by either the EU or by uh, the US that he was hoping for. Um, the EU was never very keen on uh, the new conservatives in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, they were rough, brutish types, they thought. Um, a few, like Orban, might have got a scholarship to Oxford, but most of them, they weren't the young, progressive communists whom, they, whom the EU and others, well, the governments had got used to thinking we'll be dealing with these people indefinitely. Uh, the jeunes d'arrêt of communism, who, of course, were decreasingly communist, and, and who they hoped would be kind of one round gradually to, uh, to a free society. Well, in fact, uh, the communists did surrender in a negotiated way. They became socialists. And as one of them said to me well beforehand, he said, well, uh, the, the right's going to win the first election. We know that. But we'll get, win the second. I said and naively, how can you say that? His reply was, well, we're going to leave them such a terrible state of affairs that no government can possibly govern for four years and expect to win on the basis of the, their inheritance. He proved to be completely correct. And I think that the uh, communists had sort of calculated um, the more progressive ones uh, that they would um, uh, be in power then for a very long time. But Orban, uh, in a sense, was um, he took on the uh, role of the successor uh, to... Um, uh, to, to Joseph Antal, the first democratic uh, prime minister. And Antal had led a somewhat different, moderate conservative party, uh, whereas um, Orban had been this young, wild uh, rebel, um, uh, this kind of liberal kind. 
And, um, but the two men got to know each other. And in effect, um, Orban became the successor to um, Antal. He changed his party. He moved it to the right. And uh, he won in, um, he won in um, as I say, in 98. He lost in 2002, um, although most people felt it had been a very good government. He governed well, and he governed a very liberal style. Well, I think it was a shock to him. And he went off to the uh, mountains, so to speak, to work out what to do. And he realized he had lost because he hadn't had any kind of control of the bureaucracy, which had been in the hands still of the, of the left, the communists, and of the culture. Practically all the institutions of culture were, um, were um, in the hands of the left as well. Um, he set about changing that. He set about uh, getting friends to start newspapers, buy them, um, set up a think tank, those kind of things. And he came back in, um, after a tremendously foolish speech by the Prime Minister of the Socialist Party, and uh, which, which destroyed the left, and um, and he won. Now, in before he got back, Orban had been having a conversation with the Prime Minister from the left, and he said, "Look, wouldn't it be better and fairer if the we had some kind of system that the Italians used to have, which you have two public broadcasting services." one in the hands of the left, one in the hands of the right. And the prime minister said, Victor, if you want a television station, you buy one. And in effect, as I say, that's what Orban did in the years of opposition. That meant when he came back, he not only inherited the public broadcasting system, which had been previously supporting the, the other government and now would support his, but he He'd created a whole series of institutions in the private sector, which enabled him to fight a serious, sustained ideological campaign to win support for the kind of policies you were talking about before. Uh, I would, would, um, in a sense, tick all of those. And I would add to them the, 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 the attempt he's making to use foreign aid to come to the assistance of persecuted Christian communities in the Middle East. And uh, I have seen evidence of how successful that has been and what good work it's done in places like Iraq and Syria. So um, um, Orban is an interesting figure. Um, He's not a conventional conservative. He doesn't describe himself as one, as a matter of fact. I think he sees himself as someone whose particular first responsibility is to look after the interests of the poorer people in society, the people with um, people who are working. And if they're not working, he wants to give them jobs. He describes the kind of society he wants as a work-first society. And, they've, and the, as you mentioned, the, some of the welfare programs are really quite different to those in the West, more imaginative, and more directed towards the achievement of, of other important aims as well as welfare, namely raising the birth rate of Hungarians. Uh, and um, is one, and as I say, establishing that everyone will, will be able to access a job one way or another is the other. Those, those, they're the kind of policies he's come back to pursue. He's a bit of a mystery, therefore, to the conventional left and to the conventional right. And um, there are aspects of, of, um, 
of his um, uh, forms of uh, form of government, which as a Thatcherite conservative, I, I'm not happy with. I'm much more of a free market man. He's more prepared to intervene for social objectives. I tend to think that in the end, those things don't work well, but I have to admit that so far, they seem to be working well. Um, I'm not giving up on that. Um, and so uh, I think what we, what, you know, if people are going to attack him, which is fine, you know, um, I, it's a free society. You can criticize argument, debate, and so on. He himself likes debate. He's a bit like Thatcher in that regard. Um, and I, but I think the first thing to do is to find out what he's about. Right. He's about something quite interesting. Final question, then, uh, maybe just tell our listeners uh, and our viewers, what what do you do with the Danube Institute now? Because you've been uh, a conventional conservative working in the, the Thatcher administration, then you've been uh, in the United States, and now, and now, of course, you live in Budapest. So you always do seem to show up where things are most interesting. So what have you been doing? What have you been doing lately? What is your work in Hungary all about? Yes. Well, I'm not with MI6, just in case you were suggesting that I pop up all over the place. Um, well, the, um, the answer is uh, the, only, the only time I became indignant on my own behalf when reading Anne's book was when she said that the, well, we said our institute was um, conservative in social affairs, um, uh, classical liberal in economics, and Atlanticist in NATO. And she said, well, there's no evidence that there are either Atlanticist or classical liberals. Well, I think she should look at some of the programs, which are widely available. Just um, check into our website, www.danubeinstitute.hu, and you will see, for example, we had, a pro we had a very strong conference, which we did jointly with NATO, on the defense of Eastern and Central Europe. Um, we've had two conferences on Ukraine, um, one held in, here in Budapest, which was addressed by um, uh, President, uh, President Trump's then advisor on Ukraine, Kurt, Ambassador Kurt Volker. And um, we had an earlier one in Washington, which uh, we did in conjunction with the Hudson Institute, which I think was the very first major conference on Ukraine after the Russian invasion. Um, uh, um, we had, for those interested in classical liberalism uh, economics, classical liberal economics, we had a marvelous conference uh, on uh, the late Peter Bauer, an the, uh, uh, the most famous Hungarian economist who's unknown in Hungary, but he was um, a, an economist at Cambridge and at LSE in London, who w was really the leading uh, development economist who was also a critic of development economics and that was a fine conference and if you're looking for um, um, thing oh yeah sorry I mentioned uh, I mentioned uh, Atlanticism well Atlanticism was covered by our NATO conferences and we've done quite a lot on transatlantic relations um, so th that's what we do we run conferences we invite people over to give talks um, it, um, we are um, uh, uh, we, we do that. Now, of course, we haven't been able to do that because of the lockdown. Uh, we can't hold conferences or invite people to things. What we've done, therefore, is we've been um, doing a um, uh, series of podcasts. And in recent times, I've interviewed Douglas Murray. I've interviewed Melanie uh, uh, Phillips. Um, I've interviewed um, Martin Walker, the great, um, the great sort of center-left international journalist who should have been the editor of The Guardian, but uh, 
but instead has gone, has become a, he was with, worked with me at UPI and, and he's also the author of some extraordinary uh, clever uh, detective novels set in uh, Perigord in France, uh, uh, built around a character called Bruno, a detective called Bruno. Um, now, I, I, I mean, I couldn't just list all of these, but as I say, uh, you, can, you don't need to, you can just go to our website. I don't need to, you can go to our website and see them. And that's what we're going to be doing really until the lockdown finally ends. I mean, the lockdown has ended in Budapest, but getting to and from Budapest, getting people to leave, and, and being able to get back, for example, to America or Britain, that's still a big problem for us. I don't think we'll be fully back to normal, um, frankly, until the end of this year. I mean, that's just the way thing. It's nothing to do with us. We're, we're slightly frustrated by it. But it does mean we'll be doing more, more um, podcasts. And we already, of course, have made available on our website uh, all of the conferences, which we, all of which I think we record, and right. which, you know, and that can, you know, sure. That's what we do. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time. I really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with John O'Sullivan of the Danube Institute and the National Review. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do hit subscribe, share the video so that other people can enjoy the conversation as well. You can head over to the podcast tab on LifeSightNews.com to find past shows and to find out where else our podcast is offered. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we do hope that you'll join us again next week.